Welcome to Quest, where we believe a great faith, great church experience, and great life is grounded in authentic relationship with God and living life with friends. Join us today in changing our world one friendship at a time. If you would like more information about connecting at Quest, stay tuned after the message. So there's been, uh, how many of you have uh, driven stick shifts before? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Quite a few. That's really impressive. I usually don't see that many people who've actually driven stick shifts. Well, uh, Wendy, especially lately praying for the church, has been feeling like God's given her a picture of a stick shift. And, and, uh, and it's, it's something that she's been seeing and, and she feels like uh, the stick shift that we're in first gear. That's what God's been showing her. We're in first gear. If you know her, that's just not how she rolls. Uh, she likes speed. She grew up driving a stick shift, and she loved the joy of moving that stick shift into all gears, especially when she could get it in high RPMs in fifth gear. In Oregon, she got two speeding tickets in one week, and if she would have gotten one more in a month, she would have lost her license right before we moved here. Maybe that's part of the reason we moved here. I don't know. (laughs) She likes speed, except... Even now, when I drive my Prius, she says, I drive too fast nowadays. Go figure. How can that be? My little sports car Prius. Go. Now, first gear can feel a little slow. It can feel like we're stuck. Maybe that image makes us feel like we're kind of in a remedial state of just learning to drive. But the sense is that God has us in first gear, not for punitive reasons, not because we're just being stubborn or can't be trusted more, that somehow in his grace, he has us in first gear for right now for a purpose, preparing us for the next season. So what can you do in first gear that you can't do in other years? Well, you can't go up mountains in fifth gear, right? Your car will never make it, right? With a tractor, the first gear is where you start tilling the ground and you get the land ready for planting. This series that we're in called The Deeper Work is about the good things of being in this first gear. It's going deeper with the fundamentals. And we began the series with the question, what is one thing that distinguishes us from all other religions? And it's the presence of God. Moses spoke to us that day saying, I'm not going anywhere without you, God. Your presence changes everything. And we also talked about the foundational understanding that God is our Father. Jesus' favorite term for God is Father. Do we deeply understand that kind of personal relationship? And that depth of love that God has for us. Today we're going to build on that truth with another fundamental that takes us to a step further from being called son and daughter of God to receiving the invitation to be a friend of God. See, I think God has many children, but he doesn't have many friends. And he's looking for a whole lot more. Jesus tells us, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. He's speaking to his disciples. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. Now, I have loved every stage of parenting with my kids. I loved it when they were babies. I loved it when they grew up and we got to play games. I loved throwing them in the air and watching them learn and grow and i got to tell you, having adult children, it is so awesome. I mean, some of the best conversations I have about God and life, politics and culture with my adult, very opinionated kids are wonderful. 
Now, they're my kids. They're always going to be my kids. But now they're also my friends. And that's what God wants with us, to be friends with him. So how do we become God's friend? Jesus says, in the verse right before the one we just read, he said, you are my friends if you do what I, do what I command. Now, let's understand, this kind of friendship doesn't work with other relationships. If I were to stand up here today and say, you can only be my friend if you do everything I tell you to do, how's that going to go? That would be wrong, it would be manipulative, it would be kind of a bully, kind of a jerk. You'd probably all leave the church. However, with God, it's not. Obedience is key to our friendship with Jesus. And yet, I think the word obedience kind of sets us off and gives us a negative vibe at times. Obey is often seen as a joyless, lifeless, dutiful term where we follow the rules and do all the shoulds. Our culture doesn't like authority. We don't like to be told what to do. Obey is not our favorite word, is it? Yet if we want to deepen our relationship with God, we need to understand and live in obedience. The Hebrew word for obey is shema, which means to hear or to listen. In our culture, to listen can be more of just this passive mental activity we do. We may hear something, but we don't put it into action. But the Hebrew context of to hear and to listen implies action. We do what we hear. We follow through on what we hear. Listening is inextricably tied to obeying. Eugene Peterson says it this way. He says, obedience is living in active response to the living God. We are listening to the Bible and to the Holy Spirit's voice within us, and we respond to God acting on what we are hearing. And that's the only way we discover his love and the good life that he really has planned for us. The concept of obedience easily gets mixed with a sense of shame for many of us, though, doesn't it? For me, it's from the experience I had growing up. There was this message that many speakers would share in various versions that kind of went like this. When you die, you're going to meet Jesus face to face. And he's going to sit you down and show you your life like a video where you all the things you messed up, you get to see and watch. And the message was, you don't want to have to watch. This is your life with all of your regrets, your regrets with Jesus. Now, I get the purpose of that message was to help us live a better life. But it felt like I had to be perfect and live in constant dread of messing up. For too many, there was this tendency to try to use fear and shame to motivate us to obey God more. Now, fear can play a role in our lives, right? It can motivate us to change, but it won't keep us motivated. Fear is a short-term motivator. It only motivates us for a time. So I've worked with couples where, let's say the wife is ready to leave the marriage and she's done with all the stuff he's been doing, the disconnecting, the control or the anger or whatever is going on. And, and so she says, I'm leaving. And he panics because he doesn't want her to leave. So he's crying and he begs her to stay. And he says, I'll change. I'll do whatever you want me to do. And he does change. And a couple of weeks later, because he's changed, she decides to stay. However, after a few months, if, this, if his primary motivation is fear, he starts to think, well, she's now she's not going to leave. So he goes back to his old ways. Why? 
because he wasn't really sorry for his behaviors. He just feared her leaving and didn't want her to leave. Yet being fearfully upset is not the same as loving repentance. Loving repentance leads us to change our negative behaviors because it hurts someone else and we don't want to continue to hurt them. While fear can only partially change us for a time, love for God and being loved by God and loved by others changes us deeply. Love-motivated change is also completely different and a stronger motivation for why we obey. Now, there's a legitimate place for, for fear in life. Piper says it this way. He says, fear is an imperfect bond to God, but it is a bond which should be replaced only by an infinitely closer bond, the bond of love. Jesus says, John, John says it this way, so love casts out fear. He says it specifically. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out or casts out fear because fear has to do with punishment. And the one who fears is not yet made perfect in love. Where are you motivated by fear? And yet, when we consistently talk about God's incredible, perfect love, it can lead to some to think that we're kind of in this equal relationship with God. It can kind of get this squishy kind of feel-good love kind of thing. The invitation of love to be his friend does not negate the fact that Jesus is also Lord, though. When we see God as creator of the universe, as Lord of lords, as king of kings, obedience makes perfect sense in concert with becoming his friend. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. If you don't love me, you won't keep my commands. It doesn't say if you're scared of me or frightened of the consequences, then you'll obey. It says, if you love me, you'll listen and obey me. Mike Pilibachi, a pastor in the UK, says, if you've been around Christians or been a Christian for about more than 30 seconds, you've probably heard about the five love languages. Everybody heard about that? Many of you heard that? It's the, we all have one or two main ways in which we receive and give love, whether through gifts or quality time or words of affirmation or physical touch or acts of service. My love language is ice cream. Just, yeah. I love what Pilibachi says. He says, God's love language is obedience. We've all heard the stories of great, great military commanders throughout history, people like Patton and Patton and his army, the people used to say, I will follow you to hell and back. Chesty Puller, the iconic, most highly decorated Marine of all time, the soldiers under his command said, I will follow him anywhere. See, obedience is a recognition that someone else more powerful, more wiser, more knowledgeable than you is supremely capable and worthy of your complete, absolute trust. Obedience as a means of friendship with God in that light makes complete sense. Obedience is how we tell God we love him, we trust him. The prophet Samuel says to obey is better than sacrifice, better than all these religious acts that we might do. Obedience is the highest form of worship. Further, in our relationships with those that we love, we know that we want to please them right if we really love them. 
I've seen quite a few guys who have fallen in love, and when they do, you see them change. They dress up a little more, they smell a little better, their cars are a little cleaner, right? All that kind of stuff. When someone falls in love, they want to please the one they love. Now, our relationship with God isn't a romantic relationship, but the same principle applies to any relationship. When you love someone, you want to see them happy. You want to bring them joy. We're motivated by love. And obedience is the key. It's not an obedience of slavery where you are forced to obey, but it is, obedient, it is the obedience of a loved son and daughter. The Bible tells us it is obedience that actually leads us and brings us joy. I want to highlight some glitches in how we think about obeying God. The first glitch is in obeying God is sometimes we don't want to because we want to do what we want to do, right? We are motivated by what we love. And the honest truth that we may not realize is that we often love other things more than we do God, more than we do the people around us. And so, therefore, we do them. We do what we love. I love how St. Ignatius of Loyola defines sin in this context. He says, sin is an unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. We think we know better what will make us happy, and we may have some work to do, therefore, on letting God reorder what we love. The second glitch to obeying God is we don't fully grasp that God lives in us, and we've been kind of talking about this one over and over again in this series and even this year. Jesus tells us, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with him. Becoming a follower of Jesus is not just agreeing to a set of beliefs. We are entering into a relationship with the living God. The Holy Spirit will come and live within us. We may question whether we have the Holy Spirit because we haven't experienced the Holy Spirit in dramatic ways, but the Holy Spirit moves in all kinds of ways, but it doesn't have to always be dramatic or physical. All Christians have the Holy Spirit living inside of them, and even if you're not a Christian, the Holy Spirit is pursuing you, and sometime that, sometimes those drawings, those feelings you get that draw you to want to be towards God, that is the Holy Spirit. That is the person of God coming to you. And we all have our ebbs and flows in feeling connected to God, but over time, with the Holy Spirit, we will see changes in us in what we really value and what we love and how we love. The third glitch in obeying God. We don't obey because we're not sure God really wants to work through us. We all know our flaws. We are weak. And we are all too unspiritual all too often. I used to think that God would only work through those who are spiritually put together who had basically most of the really big things really sorted out. I grew up in a pastor's home. My parents were great, yet they were flawed, and they were still used by God. I worked in churches all my adult life, and I've seen some really messed up stuff and broken people and weak people, and still God uses them and works in those situations. And I live with myself. 
I know I'm flawed, but God still works through me too. Why? Well, Paul tells us. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. In those days, they didn't have banks and safety deposit boxes, and so rich people would hide their treasure. They used to hide them in expensive vases, but the thieves were drawn to the expensive vases. So they went out and bought jars of clay, cracked pots that looked worthless. And thieves would not look at those, so they learned to put their stuff in that. Paul uses this picture to say, we are those jars of clay. He's telling us all we're cracked pots. God put his treasure in us. He uses us with all of our flaws to shine his bright light through us. And he uses the darkness of our lives and the brokenness of our lives to reveal his goodness. See, I say this because many of you write yourself off from God, using you in a significant way. Because your weakness, your repeated failures your sin, whatever it is. You don't think you are good at praying or reading your Bible or you have too much anxiety or you fail and sin too often and you think, I am too weak. Paul struggled with that too. And he asked God about his weakness and God said, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. In your weakness, God can use you and wants to use you. Why? Because God longs for us not to rely on ourselves, but on him and on his wisdom and his power and his presence, even in the midst of our weakness. Just think of the disciples. They had their issues. When Peter, when Jesus was telling James and John about how he was going to die on the cross, their response was, well, after you've suffered, could we sit at your right hand and left hand? I mean, talk about insensitive to the moment, right? Selfish ambition. And they could also be vengeful. Remember when they were, weren't invited in for a cup of coffee at a Samaritan village and they suggested Jesus should call down fire from heaven and cremate the entire city? Jesus must have thought, are they ever going to get it? And yet he loved them. He was committed to them, and he believed in them, and he believes in each and every one of you, and he's committed to you. Often his followers didn't understand that they had motives that were off, but Jesus did not give up on them. So what do we see? After his death, these Jesus followers had been so changed by God that they changed the world. I don't think God wants us to wait until we have things figured out in our lives. Because God really likes to work through us in areas of weakness because it's where we really have to depend on him and his strength and not ours. We don't have to look for the big heroes of the faith and think, I can never be like Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. The church has never been about great men and women of God. The church has been about a great God of men and women. The fourth glitch is obeying God. In obeying God is we don't think we hear God well. See, I think we complicate this. I think everyone here hears God better than you realize. We're going to spend some time more on a message coming up and how to hear God, but 
But for today, it's important that we not make obeying too difficult. So do you remember the first miracle Jesus uh, did? We talked about it in the spring. Of all the things Jesus could do for his first miracle, he didn't choose walking on water or feeding the 5,000 with a few fish and a couple loaves of bread or raising someone from the dead. No, it was what? It was to make some wine out of water so that the wedding party wouldn't be humiliated. The point I want to focus on from that today is the simplicity of Mary's request to those around Jesus. She said to them, do whatever Jesus tells you. That's so powerful, and it's uncomplicated. Jesus tells the servants to fill some jars with water, and they do. And somewhere along the way, this water they bring to the master of the banquet becomes this incredible wine. And what Jesus told them to do didn't make sense, but they obeyed, and a miracle happened. And I think if this happened to us, we'd all take our credit card and run to the local liquor store, right? But God does things his way. They listened. They obeyed what they heard. If we want to see God do more in our lives and in those around us, we need to start taking more risks and obeying what we sense God is saying to us to do throughout the Bible. What are those areas where you feel like God has said in your life, yeah, I want you to get this area right with me. I want you to do this. What are you doing with that? Simple obedience. We need to follow through on the promptings we get that we think may be from God and just see what happens. This kind of obedience to God is how our faith becomes more like love to those around us. I love hearing stories of how people live this out. Years ago, someone in our congregation was uh, given a car when they were going through a really difficult time. And just recently, they just gave their car to someone who was in need because they felt a prompting of the Holy Spirit. And so they just obeyed. Isn't that cool? It's awesome. That's the key to obedience. Now, in this instance, it may have made more sense with all the, rece- all the recession and the inflation and all that stuff going on, with everything going on in the economy, it probably made more sense to sell the car and save the money, and I get that. And that may be, for some of you, what God is asking you to do, to sell the car, save the money. But this person felt like God was saying to do this. Isn't it awesome for someone to step out and do something that doesn't make sense We may think, I will only step out if it's not too risky, and I'll do it if it makes sense to me. Just to be clear, that's not obedience. When we only follow through when it makes sense and it's reasonable to us, when it lines up with what we already want to do, that's not the obedience God is asking us to walk in. Obedience is doing what he tells you when it, even when it doesn't make sense. Sometimes it'll make perfect sense. But even when it doesn't, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's scary, that we respond saying, yes, Lord. Those servants who brought the water to, may have been thinking, Jesus, we don't have a water shortage, we have a wine shortage. And it didn't make sense to go get the water, but they did it anyway. Mary's words to the servants, do whatever he, Jesus, tells you. Those are the words for us, too, each day. Whatever it is that you feel in reading the Bible or whatever else you feel the Holy Spirit, just do what he asks you and don't worry about the next step. 
Jesus repeatedly told his followers to do things that made no sense, and they sometimes seemed a little weird. How about the time Jesus tells his disciples to go get a colt that's never been ridden and bring it to me, and if anyone asks you why, tell them the Lord needs it. That's a little bit like us going to someone's house and saying, let me have your Prius because the Lord needs it. My, my wife insisted I put the Prius in there. She, she, just, she, she thinks the Prius robs me of my manliness. But I got to tell you, a week ago Wednesday, a week ago Wednesday, I drove 90 miles and I got 70 miles to the gallon. It's the best I've ever done. Feels pretty manly to me, watching that eco meter and trying to play that game of keeping it down. And you get, you get a, Prius gives you a score of how well you drove at the end of every time you shut it off. Oh, you got an 82. No, I want a 90, right? They got the motivation going. Let's end today pulling into the well-known story Jeremy referenced a few weeks back, the story of Jesus walking on water. How many of you have seen the Sea of Galilee? They call it a sea, but it's a freshwater lake. It's 13 miles uh, long, 8 miles wide at its widest point, 64 square miles, 200 feet in depth. We often think of lakes as being calmer, but this one can turn violent really quickly without warning because the winds come down through the canyons like funnels causing serious weather on the Sea of Galilee, oftentimes getting to 10-foot-plus high waves. Here's a boat you'll see on screen that was common for fishermen of that day. Oops, something didn't come through. Sorry, that's not a boat. They had four positions. It's a small boat, probably about the width of the stage here, the front part of the stage here, and they had four positions for rowers. It could fit up about 15 people. The text says this, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. The word made is a Greek word, meaning it's not a suggestion. Jesus purposely sent them into what he knew would be a storm. 23, it goes on. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. So the disciples were on, way out on the water. The waves were intense and the wind pushing against the boat. Their sail would be of no use in that kind of wind and those kind of waves going directly into it. They were probably manning and rowing the oars for all they're worth. It was a really difficult time, and it was probably about 4 a.m. in the morning. And it goes on and says, shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. So Jesus goes out walking to them. On the, why, did he, why, why did he not just fly? Why did he not just suddenly appear to them in the boat? Why walk on the water? It's because he's walking right through their storm, showing that he's in control of everything, including all the forces of nature. Text goes on, and when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it's I, don't be afraid. Then Peter cries out and says, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. And again, we always ask this question when we read this. Would you have gotten out of the boat in that stormy waves? I don't know if I would have. Then Peter got down on the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Now, Peter's a fisherman. He would have known how to swim. But these waves and these wind and the distance he might have been away from the boat at that time made it very likely that if he sunk, he's going to die. 
I love the next word, immediately. Jesus didn't wait until Peter almost drowned. It says, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? Now some hear the words that Jesus said like Jesus is rebuking Peter. Didn't you learn your lesson, you of little faith? Why were you so foolish not to trust me? Don't you think, do you think I'd let you down? Come on, man. Sorry, didn't mean to throw that one in there. (laughs) Now the tone doesn't watch. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) That tone of Jesus, nor my tone, matches what we see Jesus being here, elsewhere, or here. See, I think Jesus used a tender, confident tone because Jesus immediately grabbed Peter, and I think he probably had a chuckle on his, in his voice and a laugh, smile on his face, and he didn't wait for him to struggle and almost drown. He saved Peter first before he shared these words. And when they climbed into the boat, it goes on, and the wind died down, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. What do you think Peter felt like in that boat? I mean, did that really happen? Did I just walk on water? See, this often gets spun like this was Peter's big failure, but this isn't Peter's big failure. It was his big moment. For the rest of his life, any time he could, Peter probably shared this story saying, let me tell you about the time I walked on the water with Jesus. I didn't stay up long, but Jesus was right there making sure I was okay. And by the way, I'm the only one who did it. I'm the only one who walked on the water. Right? Peter had this intimate experience with Jesus. And in the middle of a storm, he saw an incredible, loving miracle of God this God who is also his friend. This is the invitation that Jesus gives to every single follower of Jesus. Will you be my friend? Will you get close to me? Not just be my son and daughter, but will you be my friend? We get to practice hearing God and walking that out, obeying the little nudges that we're getting on how to spend our time, our money, and our talent, stepping out and praying more for others. We may feel like we're out of our depth. It may feel scary. But the most wonderful things happen when we take that step and walk on water with Jesus. When we feel like we don't have enough faith to do what we sense God is wanting us to do, it can be helpful to remember and know that sometimes obedience is all we need until faith comes along. We want to keep growing in our journey of obedience so that we can say this time next year that I'm obeying God in richer and deeper ways and I'm experiencing the Holy Spirit and the friendship of God and His voice in richer and deeper ways that I'm seeing Him show up in my life and bringing His goodness in richer and deeper ways. So let's just pause just for a moment. And again, I want you to close your eyes or do whatever you do to center your attention on the Holy Spirit and just say, Holy Spirit, Where are you asking me to risk right now? Where are you asking me to step out and obey?
So we're going to end the message today receiving communion together. Anybody who's a follower of Jesus can participate. Anybody who's even a seeker just going, God, I'm not sure you're real, but I want to know if you're real. I'd encourage you to participate in communion and make, and make this prayer your prayer. God, if you are as real and truthful, if you did what these elements say, would you show me that so that I can follow you? At great risk and cost to himself, God made a way for us to not only be his sons and daughters, but to be his friends. So as Jesus gathered with his followers around him the night before the cross, it says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, take this bread, remembering that Jesus modeled the obedience that he invites us into. He was beaten and broken for us. He took all sorts of risks. He's not asking us to do anything that he didn't model for us. So go ahead and receive the bread. Scripture goes on and says, In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So we take this cup to remember Jesus' blood poured out for us, that he loves us enough to pay the ultimate sacrifice and earn our trust in following him because he paid it all for us. So go ahead and receive. God, thank you that you love us so much that you come and send Jesus to us. That you not only invite us into obedience, but you show us, even though we should have trusted you anyway, even though you technically didn't have to earn our trust, that you came still and you modeled obedience, even in the risky moments, even in the moments that didn't make sense, that you modeled following the Holy Spirit and obedience. So Lord, as you invite us into that, Lord, we just trust you and we thank you that you are the commander that we can trust implicitly, absolutely. So Lord, I ask that your spirit would come and you help each other and every one of us grow in expressing our love towards you through obedience and grow in our awareness of your Holy Spirit that we would see your good work in our lives, in the lives around us. I think the best application we could do, even the best pursuit of having other people pray for us today, would be if you felt the Holy Spirit nudging you to an act of obedience, turning to someone in your small group or coming down to one of the prayer people and saying, this is what I feel like God nudging me to do. Would you pray for me in that? Honestly, we need support of other people in walking out our obedience. And this is a really really good opportunity for you to seek that support. Many of you have small group members that you're part of here. Just go to one of them. Say, here's what God is saying to me. For some of you, you're here with other needs, um, healing needs, or, or you just need, you need wisdom in a decision. Uh, I want to encourage you before you leave to get prayer, to allow the Holy Spirit to come into this moment. 
Let me bless us as we dismiss to that time of prayer and that time of sharing with one another. Lord, I pray that you would come to each and every one of us, that you would, your spirit would help us catch those hangups we have that keep us from being obedient. And Lord, you would help each one of us to become more and more a friend. We trust you, we obey you, We follow the leadings you bring in our lives. When you speak to us through the word, we don't just say nice idea, we do it. Come, Holy Spirit. Just minister each and every one of us right where we're at right now. Lord, as we seek your presence, as we learn more about you, would you make us a blessing to the world around us? With all the chaos and division, Lord, would you give us voices and a presence with our friends and our family and our co-workers to bring your peace and your presence. So in that presence and peace of the Holy Spirit, I bless you. And I send you to be his ambassadors this week in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. Have a great day. We hope you encountered the love of Jesus in this message. If you'd like to be a part of the ministry God is doing through Quest, whether in person or online, go to questvineyard.org for more information. If you want to worship God by supporting Quest financially, go to questvineyard.org give. May God bless you this week as you partner with God to change the world one friendship at a time.